Welcome to Watch Party, Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, uh, being joined today by our panel. Say hello, panel. Hello. Hey, hello, panel. Hello, panel. Uh, we got DW joining us today. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Uh, Greg's with us. Yep. David also here. Beam me up. And Siobhan is joining us today as well. Hello, everybody. Uh, Axel and Samaria unable to make this recording tonight, but uh, the, hopefully they'll be here for, for the next ones. Uh, but today we are going to get to episode one, the leave takings from the show. We finally got the show out. We finally got to see it. Uh, just before we get into this initial impressions, uh, uh, what do you guys got? Well, I watched it twice. The first time I had my notepad in my lap, ready to take notes. And by the time the credits rolled, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> I got so into it that I completely didn't write anything down. So then I had to watch it a second time for the purpose of, of this podcast. I'm, I'm personally not going to complain that uh, you found it so interesting that you forgot to take notes. I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. Uh, DW. I got to say that uh, I watched it once with my wife uh, without taking any notes, just to kind of absorb it, and then watched it right before this to take my notes and kind of get it. I enjoyed both viewings, and I'm really, really can't wait for episode two, which I'm watching right after we record this. Greg, what do you got? Oh, so much, so much. Uh, I've only watched it once today, and I, I want to keep things uh, as fresh as I can. So I tried to watch it about, you know, a couple hours ago. Still processing. Still processing. There's a lot there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to be seen in this show. Uh, David, what, what were your first initial off-the-cuff impressions? Oh, man. This, it was great. Like, uh, grabbed me even worse than Game of Thrones did, and that was pretty bad. So it just the action, the characters, the intrigue, this is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I agree. This is going to be a, a, a fun ride all the way through. Um, I'm going to give you a little background on this episode. Uh, the writer was Rafe Judkins and Michael Clarkson. Uh, Rafe Judkins also serves as the showrunner for Wheel of Time. Uh, he's the one kind of in charge of everything, kind of put the whole thing together from scratch. Um, Rafe is, is a super fan, so uh, the fact that Rafe is in charge is something that a lot of us in the fan community are very happy about. Um, it was directed by Uda uh, Brycevich, I believe. I'm pr I, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I certainly hope so. Uh, Uda uh, has has done quite a few things uh, with with high quality TV. Uda has has directed some episodes of Westworld, episodes of Stranger Things, um, episodes of Altered Carbon, all shows that I personally love. So I'm I'm so happy that Uda agreed to come do some episodes of Wheel of Time. And with that background information, we're just going to jump right into our story recap. Uh, I'm just going to go through and start recapping the story. And you guys uh, go ahead and, and speak up if, if there's something you have something you want to say about. So we started out with uh, Moraine. We saw Moraine putting on her suspenders, putting on her outfit, uh, talking about getting ready for this whole journey. I, I kind of liked that scene because it really kind of helps set the world in a, in a good way. Um, anybody have any thoughts on that one? There was some, um, dialogue, like she's, she's talking to herself or to, to the audience or whatever, where she was talking about the dragon who broke the world. Now I was under the impression that the dragon 
was the person who fought off the Dark Lord in the previous life. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the dragon is the one who fought off the Dark Lord in the previous life. Uh, if you remember when I was uh, going over that lore, uh, when when they sealed the Dark One away, the Dark One had a counterstroke which, which tainted the male half of the magic source. And it was that taint that drove all of the men mad, including Luz Theron, who was the original dragon, and caused them to break the world. So... So they saved the world, but also disrupted it entirely yeah, at the it, same it, time. Yeah, the, 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 there's definitely a Shiva analog there gotcha. to be found. I just thought that was interesting because um, the, both sides are looking for the dragon, one would assume for their own purposes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's a very, very astute observation right off the bat. Um, so we go into our next scene. Uh, we see... Uh, a couple of men running up, uh, on a road in some mountains, some very craggy mountains, uh, being chased down by some women in red. Uh, DW, you have something? Yeah, the hallucination aspect of it. Uh, I don't feel they quite went into that yet. Um, I get that the hallucination uh, person, so so the, the, the person who wasn't really there, um, was egging him on clearly to use the magic that he had access to. But he then didn't, and he seemed to be trying to protect the other man who didn't really exist. And then I believe they ended him. Um, we don't quite know whether they totally ended him. I don't know. I, I don't know if I feel strongly that it was definite that he was ended. Um, and then I also I don't know why he was hallucinating the person. Is that the madness? Is that a representation of the madness? Not sure. That's sure what I what I picked out of it. That's that's what I got. Almost like he had two sides, uh, one side that was his human side and the other side that was the magic trying to come out and the hallucination became that side. Right. So sort of personified and just living in only his psyche, you know, just something that, that only he could see, only he could communicate with. But that was kind of the, the bad angel on his shoulder. And yeah, it was specifically trying to egg him on to take them out. So I, I felt bad that there wasn't more of the like good angel, bad angel that was just bad angel. Right. The other thing I got out of that scene was uh, seeing the other Aes Sedai, uh, Leandrin, I think was her name. Yes, Leandrin Sedai. Uh, she was very overconfident and cocky, and it really showed me that maybe the Aes Sedai at this point are kind of being corrupted, not by a dark one taint per se, but by their own power and, and politics at this point. Arrogance. I, I really got this feel of arrogance, um, especially. So one of the questions I had about, about that scene was whether or not the magic power is something you reach for. Is it something you can learn or pursue or is it innate? Are you born with it? Because the way she described um, his magic, she said, you make it filthy. Not it is hurting you, but you are the thing that's poisoning it. Which came across to me as like this incredibly um, arrogant attitude. And she almost seemed smug when she was um, either killing him or taking the magic out of him or whatever it was she was doing. 
So I have to say that the the showrunners are definitely doing their job because the fact that I heard all of you calling calling Leandrin smug and overconfident and and all of those things is nailing the character of Leandrin Sedai. So they they are off to a running start in in my opinion. DW, what do you got? Uh, the one last thing I noted on the scene that I didn't note at the time. It's in it's later in my notes, but there's no white smoky magic for her. So now I'm wondering if there's like effects that each one has, or do they have different magics? Or like, I, I'm wondering why uh, Moraine's magic has that white smoky feel to all of the spells that she seemed to cast. And there didn't seem to be any smoke to, to that the rock slide. You know, I, I, I'm not sure necessarily why that is. I know in the books, I... Um the only people who can see the the weaves being woven are the the people who can touch the magic so female channelers can only see female channelers weaves and male channelers can only see male channelers weaves and people who cannot channel cannot see any weaves um and in the books they they switch point of view from chapter to chapter so you you're always seeing from a different person's eyes not not always a different person but you know it, it jumps around quite a bit and so if that person can see weaves, they will describe the weaves and, and, and you can see the weaves going on. If that person cannot see weaves, they don't describe the weaves and you can't see the weaves. And I'm wondering if that might be what's happening in this scene is we're kind of seeing it from his point of view. Which then he wouldn't be able to see her weaves. Exactly. Okay, interesting. So I'm, I'm thinking the, the later scenes with Moraine where you can see the weaves, we're, we're seeing it from Moraine's point of view or from the point of view of somebody else who can channel so we can see all of those weaves. Hmm. I'm going to need to go back and watch that to see who <laughs> who's actually nearby on those scenes where you don't see Moraine and really get a, uh, yeah, just kind of get a hint there. Yeah, well, to cool. a certain extent, you may even have a switch of it because I don't know that we saw the magic they used to potentially end him. I'm going to have to rewatch that moment. But when we don't see anything, we just see the rocks fall. We still see the guy that the guy sees the right. hallucination guy. Right. So when we then flip back, I, I need to wa- go back and watch and see if with the spell that they cast on him at the end, can we see anything there? Cause clearly we're no longer looking at it through his perspective as the guy's gone. It'd be interesting. Or maybe, or maybe he just realized that the guy was never there to begin with. And that's why the guy is gone. That's true too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're not even to the opening credits, and you guys are already getting deep into this. Uh, <laughs> and before we switch to the next uh, scene, I have to point out: was that a matte painting there at the end when it pans up? Because it was gorgeous, and it did not look like CGI. That was a matte painting at the end. Um, I I agree, it was absolutely gorgeous, and um, um, I wanted to bring up some of those matte paintings actually because. Uh, um, at first, when I saw some of those those mountains in the background, the the super jaggy mountains that don't look real, I thought, okay, they're 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 pushing a little too hard into the fantasy realm here for for half a second. And then I realized, no, the world was literally broken by madmen, and mountain ranges were completely remade. So why not? And and it just made me realize. Even after you know reading these books, how many times there's going to be new stuff for me to find in this show, and I'm loving it. I saw windows. 
those look like skyscrapers. Oh, Make yeah. Sure in, 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 I saw the same thing. I saw that that was a city that was no longer in existence anymore. That city. was absolutely a city that was no longer in existence. I can tell you that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it dates from the Age of Legends because... They they have nothing like that in the third age, but the age of legends they definitely had had uh, was the pinnacle of of achievement. So skyscrapers would be a thing. Um, and moving on, uh, let's see. They they then panned up the cliff, and we get our first introduction of Moraine and Lan. And Moraine says, "That's not him. Let's bounce." And Lan's like, "Where are we bouncing to?" And she's like, two rivers. Let's go. There's some Taviran there." Did anybody catch up? Catch that Taviran? I yeah, I was wondering what that uh, what that meant. Okay, so that's uh, in world lore. So the conceit that I gave you guys uh, before was that the the wheel of time weaves the threads of our lives together to form the the pattern. Um, Taviran are people who affect the weave of the pattern in outsized ways. Um, they will cause. Uh, threads near them to weave closer to them or to weave in ways that are advantageous to them. Um, basically, this is something I love that Robert Jordan came up with because it is uh, uh, a complete explanation for Dos Ex Machina. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you have your, your, your hero people that the pattern needs in order to uh, make the pattern the way it is, and and those people cause the pattern to actually weave around them in a way. Hmm. So that that's what uh, Taviran means when she said that. I'm I'm surprised that they brought that up without explaining it, but that's what that means. Cool. Um, so then we we get our title sequence. Uh, it was a very short title sequence for this first episode, um, and then we get into a ceremony with a bunch of women who are wearing braids and uh, kind of walking along a river's edge into a cave or, or to a, 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 an area over the, the river. Um, and we see Nynaeve and Egwene, and we see Nynaeve yeet Egwene into the river. <laughs> I, I got to say, when, when they first had the stand-up, I was making jokes with my wife. I was like, like Lash, she looks like she's going to push her. <laughs> and then when I saw like her turn back around, I'm like, no, no, she's going to push her. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Not quite Butch and Sundance, but uh, yeah, there was yeeting involved. Uh, any thoughts about that scene? Clearly brings forth that although the light seems to be their primary deity, that the folks here in the river realm also kind of flow with the river as well. Your trust in the river type of thing. Right. Okay. I, I like that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation. A little with that, you know, leaf in a stream philosophy. You, you can't... You can't fight the fates, but you can ride them. But also there was clearly some, um, for lack of a better term, education, because like the uh, one of the things, if you ever go whitewater rafting, one of the first things they tell you if you ever fly, fall out of the boat is to point your feet downriver, mm -hmm. which is what she did. And that keeps you safe because your feet will then bring the rest of your body over whatever it needs to. You keep your feet up from getting tangled. You're, it keeps your head up, like all of the things that it does by pointing your feet downriver. And she did that. And I, I kind of liked that. There was some flailing initially, and then she, I think it's it's almost like she remembered what she was supposed to do. And then so she came through it right. safely. Yeah, but this was obviously an important ceremony of some kind, like a coming of age ceremony, because it's mentioned when they get back to town, like everyone celebrates that she's there. 
the boys say, Hey, how did the ceremony go? That sort of thing. So this is something that all of the, the rivers women go through or special rivers women go through. It's a big deal for her in her life. Right. Uh, and, and I'll give you guys some background on that right now. It's, uh, um, in the two rivers, uh, when women come of age, they get to join the women's circle, which is, uh, kind of like the village council, the village councils for the men and the women, women circles for the women. Um, and part of that coming of age ceremony is they get to braid their hair, wearing their hair in a braid is, is, uh, symbolic of them reaching maturity. Um, so w- girls in the two rivers just have loose hair and, and once they're allowed to braid it, it's always in, in these very amazing braids, like, like you saw in Nynaeve's braid, which was absolutely phenomenal. So this was Egwene finally getting to braid her hair and, and kind of having a coming of age. Ceremony. So is she older than usual for that ceremony? Because m- most coming of age ceremonies don't wait until you're 20. I mean, well, I will say in the books, the 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 characters were a bit younger. They aged them up for the show because you know, seventeen and eighteen year old world saviors are unrealistic. But for some reason, at twenty year old twenty years old, they they suddenly become more realistic. Yeah, I was so going to ask I, that. I, yeah, so I I think that's it. They they just kind of advanced that ceremony because they advanced the age. But you know, I kind of got the vibe also that like a lot of coming of age, just coming of age stories or ceremonies happen, uh, when there's like 13, 14 usually, but that's not necessarily welcome to the ruling uh, the like governing body. So there's right. clearly like a little bit more age required to be joining the women's circle. than there is just, you're now a full grown adult. We're going to treat you with respect as now you've earned the right to also help us guide the village. Sort of a difference between a bar and a bat mitzvah and being allowed to vote. Mm. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good way of putting that. This episode brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even those beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of your favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings and Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, the Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four in Cats with a K, Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. So then we see right after that, uh, um, Egwene gets through the river, uh, gets out of the river and goes into town where we run into the rest of our cast in in the wine spring inn having a, a good time and everybody turns around and cheers when when Egwene shows up um any thoughts from this scene why i do all good that fan- oh yeah why do all good fantasy stories start at an inn with a bunch of beer around <laughs> all good stories start that <laughs> most good stories most of my drink. good stories are started with a, a whole quantity of beer so <laughs> i can't Not judge a lot of bad ones too but <laughs> <laughs> Actually, David, I like that you pointed out that a lot of uh, 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 fantasy stories start out at an inn because uh, Jordan very specifically leaned into trying to make this as, as fantasy story cliche as he could right at the beginning in order to hook people. He, he knew it would bring people in if it felt natural, like something they were used to. It's also um, a really organic way of getting everybody in a town in one place at the same time. They're there for a party. Right. 
And it goes back to game making too. Like you always have that central place where you get your quests from and well, you go back to all the time. The, the get the quest from, it's also a great place for strangers, which, you know, we get in this. Mm-hmm. Strangers can randomly walk in. If it's happening at somebody's house, the strangers randomly walking in is usually greeted much differently. Um, but if it's a bar, you're more welcoming to the stranger walking in. Uh, so it, it allows people who know each other to gather, but it also allows people who aren't yet part of the story a reason to be in the room when something happens. Right. That's a good observation there as well, DW. Um, and I just noticed I skipped over a scene. Uh, we had Rand, Rand and Tam walking on the quarry road into town. Uh, Tam just giving some very fatherly advice about uh, the turning of the wheel and the wheel weaves as the wheel wills and, and you know. A, a lot of very fatherly advice sounding things. Um, anybody have any notes from that scene? No, that one seemed pretty, pretty clean and straightforward. I mean, it was definitely a little bit of uh, well executed exposition. It didn't seem out of place, but it didn't seem to create a lot of stories. It was a nice introduction to those two characters. Yeah, I, I, I agree as well. Uh, so back to the wine spring, spring in where we just were. And uh, we've got a, dark figure comes trotting in and uh Nynaeve immediately turns around and says name yourself and dark figure names himself uh what do you guys think of this scene i got a real western vibe out of that you know the stranger walks into a saloon all the the piano stops everybody stops talking and you hear the spurs jingling. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna say you could you could hear his spurs even though he's not even wearing spurs. Len is the <laughs> master of the dramatic entrance. <laughs> yeah, that was well, the cin- cinematography matched westerns too. Like they only Very show his boots so. as he comes in, and then they pan up and introduce the character. One of the things that caught my eye, and I noted, was. Um, even when you've now seen that it's Moraine, you know that she's one of the people we're supposed to feel comfortable around. Nynaeve never takes her hand off her dagger. No. The mm-hmm. whole scene, she is still ready to draw that thing as if any moment this is going to go south, even right. as everybody else kind of starts to relax. So that was an interesting uh, like lead in on her character. I, I, I'm glad that you picked up on that because you're, you're picking up on Nynaeve's character very quickly there. And I have some notes on that from the scene that they have later of it's clear that Nynaeve does not trust Aes Sedai at this point. She's got a grudge against them. It's mm-hmm. right. It's a big deal to her. Um, so, so we have, uh, Moraine walks in, she walks over to the fire, she, uh, warms her hands. That's when somebody notices the ring on her hand and, and addresses her as Sedai and, and the room gets hushed. And I think at this point we really see the, the weight that, that being an ice Sedai holds in this world. Also, even just the way she walked into the room, you start with the camera slightly out of focus and she kind of walks into focus. It's a very momentous entrance. Mm-hmm. No, and Tam says something interesting after she goes upstairs. He mentions that I said I don't fight wars. They pull strings, the strings of the world from their white tower. So it really brings into play how these folks feel about the the city magic users and the politics of the time right now. Also, a very interesting observation. Yeah. Um. So we we see. Uh, Lan and, and Moraine go off to their rooms and everybody else kind of continue on their way. Um, this is kind of where we first meet our, our three lead boys. Uh, we've got uh, Matt Cawthon, Perrin Ibarra, and Randall Thor. 
they were sitting around playing games when when this whole scene started, and now they're kind of chatting at each other. Uh, any thoughts on those three? They they really seem to have you know some at, at at first some of the you know the standard archetypes. You've got the you know the, the shepherd, and you've got the wizard, or not the wizard, but the uh, the muscle, and you've got the thief. You know, uh, you don't really catch the thief vibe until a little later when uh, when Pod and Fane comes in, but uh, yeah, they're you know interesting archetypes that you see from the from the outset. Oh, I I got the thief vibe from him like right during oh, the game. Yeah, yeah, and oh, like, that's he, true. he already that's had the, the gambling, he had the yes. thief the thief vibe early for me. But then they spend so much time saying how much of a heart he has and and how much he cares about his family and his life and everything. It's like the thievery is not his prime focus. It's not his prime drive. It's like a secondary thing that's there just because that's the way he was raised. The the lovable rogue. It's his job. Yeah. Yeah. Thief with a heart of gold. Yeah. Very Aladdin kind of thing. I steal because I have to. You know. So, so the character I've always compared Matt to is uh, Han Solo, which mm-hmm. is everything that you guys just described. So, I think uh, you're you're right on track with with understanding these characters. The lovable rogue. The lovable rogue. Uh, so we leave. Uh, we follow Perrin, and he goes back to uh, the forge where we meet up with Perrin's wife. I knew she was Awkward. doomed from the second she appeared on the screen. I'm <laughs> There's no way the sky is going to go off on this quest from which he may never return if he's got a wife he loves at home. She's got to go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to let you in on a little uh, difference between the book and the show right here, and this is a big one that a lot of people are not not necessarily so on board with. Perrin was not married in in the novels. Um, he interesting. He was not Very married. Uh, none of none of them were. I mean, honestly, they're they're written like they're virgins. Um, I, I would not be surprised if they were. Like none of them are married. None of them have much experience with with. The opposite sex in the books so this with parents starting married is is a big change and i personally understand it it's going to give him the ability to shortcut a lot of his character development that would take a long time with internal monologue otherwise so i i'm kind of on board with it but yeah th- this is one of the the changes that a lot of people are are kind of iffy about well, it also seems like an aspect of aging them. You talked about they made everybody older. So the idea in a town where people would probably be married by their age, you have, you know, Rand and Egwene like starting to like look at that aspect of yeah. their relationship. So one of the people who clearly still you get the feel married young, like married first sweetheart kind of feel. And it's now getting the awkward stage of, of, um, you know, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. There's still some love, but there's still some like really not knowing how to deal with the problems and probably conversations that never happened before the wedding. Yeah. But that's a good read on that situation because especially that being a situation, I have no clue what's going on there. Um, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that read on it. Oh, and I'm interested to hear that they weren't in relationships in the book because I had noted that, Egwene and Rand's relationship would be a big deal on this journey that they're going on because they start in a relationship, you know, the next following scenes, they end that relationship 
presumably, and now they're back together because the situation that ended their relationship is now gone. And that's a big time deal with characters and, and stories. And now they're stuck on a quest together. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> stuck. It's it's also very early in the quest. I don't know they've necessarily, um, in, in, on Egwene's part anyway, I don't know that they've necessarily already given up the idea of going back to a normal life. This is all very new, and I don't know that you've really processed to the to the point where you're saying, okay, now I can make different decisions because I'm not going to be the wisdom. Right, and they still have family alive in the village. So jumping ahead just a little bit, they've you know they, they've still got their people, you know, for those two at least. Well, and I also don't get the the vibe that a lot of people from Two Rivers go on quests. So I get kind of uh, the um, Hobbit vibe of like these aren't people who necessarily go out and do epic things. They live their lives, they live it well, and they've a tight knit community. But now right. these people are kind of being forced into a world and a, a path that they haven't. So, known. so what you're saying is the Two Rivers is Hobbiton. Kinda, is yeah. I know, I know that yeah. certain members of this <laughs> podcast would not be thrilled with <laughs> that connection being made, which is I'm hesitant to bring it up, but I'm noticing the parallel. Hey, Axel's not here, so we're okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could we could say they, it's would, they to might Moose listen Jaw, to it. So people, I don't know. <laughs> We say it's equivalent to Moose Jaw. Not a lot of people from there go out on quests either. So there we go. There we go. Or we just say well, there's just not a lot of people of from Hobbiton. there. Period. To be going. Well, on there's quests. that. True. True. Um, okay, so back to our timeline. Um, we've finished up with Perrin and his uncomfortable situation with his wife. Not sure what's going on there. And then we follow Matt, who uh, goes out and finds his his drunk mom watching his drunk dad, and and has to deal with with very drunk parents, and and it's. Kind of a sad situation. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the look that his father gives him at a couple points, like that being paralleled with the look that he gives him when he comes back with the girls, was it, it spoke volumes without them ever giving the father a line. Right. Absolutely. And and this is another big change from the books. Uh, Natty and Abel Cawthon in the books were were perfectly fine parents. Um, Abel was a, the known as the best horse trader in town. So, you know, essentially his dad was a used car salesman. So, you know, not, 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 not necessarily the, uh, the, the best role model, but still accepted within uh, decent society. So they definitely, uh, uh, changed that background quite a bit. But again, I think like with Perrin, they're, they're needing to do, to find a shortcut to to character motivations. Um, so. you, have to, you have to give the audience a reason to sympathize with him, even though he makes bad choices. Right. Yeah, I- exactly. And, and in the books, you know, you get a lot of, uh, internal monologue. So, so you get their thoughts and, and we don't get that in the show. So, so I can see why they would do that as a, a shortcut. Uh, so then we go back to the wine spring Inn. it's after, uh, everybody's left and, uh, Rand and Egwene end up, uh, alone together to have a discussion. Did anybody else get the feeling that the parents left knowing, like, we need to leave the two lovers alone? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, the, that was absolutely what was going on, yeah. But 20 years old, not married yet. What's going on? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but the fact that they do the thing that a lot of parents in more um, uh, prudish, for lack of a better term, societies... Like they'd be worried about the two kids doing exactly what they did, and like there was this is like no 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 we they're good they're good let's go sneak off. It's an enlightened society. 
she's got her braid now, so she's got to be braid. married off. I don't get the feeling that was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, moving on to our next scene, we have uh, uh, Moraine and Lan in a hot tub. Beautiful use of magic. Yes. I, I thought... Yeah, it was great to introduce it that way. I thought it was a great way to introduce just how close they are. I mean, mm-hmm. apart from the fact that they're sitting naked in a hot tub together, he teases her into heating the water up and she just, you know, does that little favor for him. Very, very gracefully done. He never asks a direct question and she just does it. And I just, like, it, it showed this relationship between the two of them. They know each other really well. And they're fond of each other. Yeah, you didn't get like a servant master kind of feel out of it. You got these are two people who are like they see each other as as equals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much, very much equality, and they're they're professionals. You know, you didn't get a, a sexual vibe from it either. It's these are, you know, they're they're soldiers. They're doing what they uh, doing what they do and having a good personal relationship with it to go is, you know, that's perfect. Yeah. I really liked that scene. It, I thought it did a lot to, to really show the relationship between them. Yeah. I agree that the, the, it showed their relationship really well. You guys all just nailed it uh, dead on. Um, you know, the, the fact that they are, they have a, this mutual respect and they're kind of soldiers in the same war. And, and the fact that you picked up on that, uh, Again, just tells me that the showrunners know exactly what they're doing here. Can can I make one one other comment about it? And one something one thing I started to notice about around that scene: every person cast in this show, for the most part, is beautiful. Oh my God, they're all gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I do have to agree with you on that one. Yeah, I was just um, sitting there watching it, going, "Man, these are the most photogenic people you could ever find," and then. Uh, so then uh, we we go to a quick scene of uh, Egwene and Rand, uh, obviously having uh, just had some fun in the the main main room of the inn. There, I don't think there's really much. Christening to... the tables, they've yeah. gotten through about four of them at this point. They've got four more to get to. <laughs> so it's not the beer that's making the tables stick. Ah, uh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's also, there's not a smoking and non-smoking <laughs> section. There's the, which True. tables would you prefer? <laughs> sticky or non-sticky? Uh, so then we've got uh, uh, our next scene. We just see a dark rider on a horse riding into the center of town. Um, the Fade. As That's a remarkably chill horse. Yes. Remarkably chill horse for having a, 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 a hell spawn yeah, on its exactly. back. Is, is that where I'm... I wouldn't have expected that level of uh, calm from an animal that close to that thing. Well, the horse is evil too, so that you, must be it. Evil horses. Evil horses. Those are the bane of existence, right there. Okay, so then into our next scene, we've got uh, you brought him up earlier. Pat and Fane, our peddler, comes uh, rolling into town the next morning. He is a sketchy character. Uh-huh. Yes, he's a scamp. He is what? a scamp. So uh, Matt goes up to deal with him. Uh, the, the, the Matt's trying to sell him stolen goods, and he's trying to fleece Matt for as hard as he can. So I'm not sure why you would think he was a sketchy <laughs> character. But uh, hey, the thing I I wanted to know, and I don't feel it, I have an answer necessarily, 
because I think there's more to, to figure out. But um, I don't know that Matt actually stole the bracelet. I get the feeling he found a way to talk her out of it. Oh, maybe. I don't know. That, that's, that's an interesting... Like, he pop. walked up and started flirting with her, and, like, the way he was working, trying to get people to give him money, he didn't seem like the, the sleight-of-hand type. He seemed like the, oh, that's a really pretty, bra-. you know, my sisters love that, mm. you know, like talked her out of it in her drunken moment that she might regret later, but that's kind of the feeling I got. And then he ran off and sold it or like, or got her to give it to him as a show of affection. And then he's off selling it like that. That was more the vibe I got off of him. Huh. Interesting I take. I don't know. Yeah. I caught him. I, I just caught him eyeing it. And I would think that if, yeah, you're right. If he was any decent sleight of hand, he wouldn't have, you know, blown all his money playing dice. Well, he also wouldn't have walked up and introduced himself to her. It would have been a bump. But he um, goes over and starts talking to her right after he sees the bobble. And there's the conversation and the, let me get you a drink. And you know, like that um, kind of vibe was true. going on. So I have a feeling he talked her out of it. Hmm. Silver tongue devil. That's a very astute observation. So then uh, next we see Matt, or sorry, we see Moraine and Lan uh, kind of having a conference in town. Lan saying that he's... Uh, sensing an eyeless around town and that they have some work to do. Yeah. I heard that term, the eyeless and all I could think of was the trailer. Yeah. So I think there was a question from the trailer about whether or not that thing was the dark one, but they say one of the eyeless. So obviously there's more than one of them around. Um, and do you guys want some, uh, background lore on, on this creature or do you want to let it uh, play out? I don't think I want it yet. I don't okay. know. I can't for everybody yeah. else. I'll yeah. go ahead and put, stick right. my fingers in my ear if somebody wants to know. <laughs> no, I'm, absolutely, I'm absolutely fair out. enough. I'm, I'm willing to let it, let it You slide. can always edit this in later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then we cut to Rand and Egwene on the mountainside, um, having their little breakup conversation as Egwene's telling Rand that she's going to uh, go become a wisdom. She's choosing her career over making babies, and Rand is sad. Mm-hmm. Tale as old as time. Well, the fact that th- this particular career requires you to make that choice, like some get to choose both career and baby, this is a career of abstinence, no husband, no children, you become the wisdom. That's the that's what I got from it. Well, and I find it interesting that Nynaeve's even trying to find a apprentice at this point. Like she's three years older than they are. What right. what's with that? Is she planning to get out? Is she trying to hand this off to Egwene? Or does she see something in Egwene like like she's more important than I am? Because to me, she would be years down the road before she tries to find an apprentice at that point. Yeah, there's a lot about Nynaeve that is just, it, it's missing. It's missing. We need more info about her. She's intriguing. I'll, I'll put forward that we also don't know what the wind tells people. So we don't know what the wind has told Nynaeve. Good point. If it has at all. There are people in that, that kind of position sometimes know what's going to happen and they can't tell anybody because it'll change events. And I don't know how prophetic the wind is and being able to hear the wind, but that may be an aspect to it of Nynaeve may know oh. things either about uh, Egwene or about her, you know, coming up future like that, that is pushing this idea. Can she even hear the wind or does she need Nynaeve right there or uh, Egwene right there to kind of get vibes off of that? Mm. So maybe she's the pretender at this point. That's that's uh, that's an interesting take there. 
I feel the scene where they're on the bridge though. I do feel like they're both hearing it. I didn't get the feeling that one was kind of like trying to lead the other on. Nynaeve seemed to be like, okay, this is how you do it. This is how open up. What are you hearing? Like that kind of feeling. Yeah. Interesting takes all around. There could, there could be something to what David was saying though. I, I, she's just Nynaeve as a character is there. There's not enough known about her. I can see that. Yeah. So, so speaking of not enough known about Nynaeve, our, our next scene is uh, Nynaeve and Moraine uh, meeting in the, the sacred cave. Very, very interesting conversation takes place here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. About her, about her, her mentor. Correct. And also about the fact that nobody knows um, where Nynaeve even came from. She was brought to the village as a baby. Or specifically right. her age, because clearly Moraine's looking at her as someone who could possibly be the dragon reborn as well. Possibly. Possibly. Right. And and she's claiming she's 25, um, but we have no proof. Well, here's the thing. She never answers the question. She's not claiming to be 25. She said she's had the braid for five years, which Moraine then turns into, oh, so you're 25. It's, it, she doesn't answer questions. She lets other people take the information and kind of make an answer that's like, okay, if that answer is what you wanted to, if you'll stop asking now, I'm just going to let that sit. <laughs> Almost like uh, an Aes Sedai whose, whose truth is not always the truth that you think you heard, in a way. And speaking of the Aes Sedai, we find out how how much uh, disdain she has for them at this point and the backstory of why as well. Yeah. The reason why she really does not like Maureen. This kind of goes back to that, you know, the I said, I appear to have become very arrogant in their, in their power. More, very, more very evidence so. for the uh, prosecution. Starting to get a whole star Wars episode two vibe here with the Jedi council. and. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not only arrogant, but classist at this point, too, because True. it's very clear that that her, well, we assume that her mentor was rejected because of her class state and not necessarily because of her magical ability. Right. Then uh, back to our, our uh, timeline here. Uh, we've got the three boys meeting up in town, uh, talking about Egwene, talking about Rand and Egwene breaking uh, up. There's one little bit scene that happens right before yes. that. Yes. Okay. The goats. The goats. The goats Who actually killed the oh. goats. Uh, the goats was actually right after that scene, but yes. Uh, I put them into that. Oh, I had, I had I, it opposite in my notes. Sorry. That's um, no problem. I was, I'm curious. Is like, is this a message or an offering or is this how, how the Trollocs are created that we see in this town. That's, that's, I w- looked at that. The first time I saw that scene, I thought, okay, the Trollocs are killing animals and eating them. But the second time, I thought, no, the, those things have burst. That The Trollocs came out of those. Not only burst, they're only in the shape of one of the halves of the yes. yin Yes. And they're, they're mostly, um, from what I could see, it mostly looked like deer, animals with horns, and all the Trollocs had, had antlers and horns had horns on them yep. yes it's all a, all a very interesting uh, theorizing there because like. you don't you don't see the shade march in with a bunch of trollocs when he comes into town it's like well did the shade march into town figure out what's going on go out of town find his animals and create his trollocs to to go rain havoc all right i, I like where you guys are going with this 
Um, then our, our next scene after that, we've got uh, Egwene and Nynaeve on the bridge, uh, the scene you were talking about earlier where uh, they're listening to the wind together. Um, and uh, we've got, uh, we go back to the three boys in town, and this is the point where they uh, pool their money together to give Matt some money because he's uh, a little little short. Yeah, nice to see the friendship is strong despite, like, the gambling and everything felt a little bit like he might be the type that was taking advantage of the, them occasionally. But this is the proof that no, they all have a friendship here. Yeah. And he wasn't trying to take advantage of people just to take advantage of them. He's trying to make money because his family, which he cares about is not really that functional. You know, he's very protective of his sisters. So he's trying to be the provider and the stable, the stable element there. Right. Um, then we see uh, Rand and Tam uh, go back to the Althor farm for the night. Um, they're, they're heading back to uh, celebrate on their own. Um, and we, we see the, the winter night celebration begin in, in earnest. Uh, we see people putting uh, um, lanterns into the river. The, the conceit there is that they are calling the souls of their lost loved ones back to visit with them during the winter night celebration. Mm-hmm. A little day of the dead kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, Rourke, the Asian themes, it's a very Asian um, uh, feeling ceremony of the, the lanterns that I know they use um, for uh, floating in the water and, and lifting up into the air to, to celebrate the dead. It's also in some, uh, some Latin, uh, uh, you know, Latino uh, cultures as well. It's oh, cool. very much a day of the dead kind of thing too. Yeah, abs- absolutely. On the Althor farm, we do see uh, Rand and Tam hanging uh, uh, one lantern up outside of their farm. Um, I think we can probably puzzle out who that lantern mm-hmm. is for. Mm-hmm. So they don't do the release. It's just sort of a keep it around. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of background there because I don't think they're really going to go into it with the show. Um, his mother's name was Kari, Kari Althor. Um, Rand has has a few memories of her, but not many. Um, she passed when he was young from a sickness, and Tam has just been the one raising him ever since. Just a little bit of more background from the books that I don't think they're going to bother getting into with the show. Or if they do, it's, it's just going to be an aside. Um, so then we see uh, Egwene making her way f- through the forest, and she runs into Moraine, and uh, they kind of stare at each other from opposite sides of the river. And we get back to the Winter Night Festival next, um, and we cut to Lan finding Moraine and saying that the Fade has Trollocs, um, at least a few dozen. And this is very bad news. And we see the, the, the uh, people of Two Rivers having a, a wonderful winter night and dancing and having a great time and listening to some wonderful music. And then we see an arrowhead protrude from the chest. Of one Poor of the dancers. Tom. I know. Poor Tom. And suddenly, Trollocs everywhere. Those were spectacular. The the costumes, the, the practical effects, they looked fantastic. They were frightening. They were they really had a sense of scale and a sense of size to them. Although I did notice one on, there was a dolly pan going through and there was one that seemed kind of small that was attacking someone. Uh, 
that just that one, it looked a little out of place. And I don't know if that's supposed to be a juvenile or what the, uh, what the explanation is for it, but they were, they were a range. It wasn't like, you know, orcs where everything looks the same. Right. This was, you know, there, there, there was variation and there was some real thought put into the personality, you know, making them, making them separate. And I also noticed that they, uh, were actually hard to kill, unlike uh, orcs from Lord of the Rings. Like one arrow brings an orc down, but these guys, they were slashed at, stabbed at, throats cut, and they're still moving around trying to kill you. They were pretty tough to kill. Yep. I love the one that you saw running towards them on all fours. And then just as it gets close, it gets up on his hind legs. I thought just the, the whole effect, like the really animalistic movement i thought just Mm -hmm. really made it for me you get that that feral feel with it really just amps up the terror of it yeah that whole scene was just so frantic the first time i watched it i kept thinking where's moraine and land where are they what's taking them and then because you know this thing just this this whole battle just seemed to last forever and then the second time i timed it and it was exactly four and a half minutes between um, all the Trollocs bursting into the town square and Moraine showing up and starting to kill them. So she must have been coming out of those woods in a dead run. But it, because the battle was just so intense, it felt like it was 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, I, I have to say the the Trollocs are are everything I hoped they would be. Um, they they really stuck true to the book description of the Trollocs. Well, they um, had 25 so pages of descriptions. To yeah, it, exactly. Of, of each Trolloc. <laughs> Um, well, Jed over here, he has, yeah. And, and I can say that they did change them up just a little bit in that in the books, they were kind of all written as being the same size, which was huge, like the size of the largest Trolloc that you saw there. Whereas I, I like the, the more variation in size that, that they were showing in the show. Um, like you were saying, uh, Greg, the, the very small Trolloc. I, I also saw that Trolloc and I was like, that is interesting because that is not a Trolloc-sized Trolloc. Yeah, it's almost cute. (laughs) (laughs) But just as vicious as the others. Like, he seemed like maybe a faster model, maybe goat-based, whereas some of the other were (laughs) (laughs) bull-based. Like, like, you could just picture him run up and button the hell out of somebody. (laughs) There was was a couple that had tusks, so I wondered if they came from boars or something. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple with with very strong boar tusk uh, uh, feel to them. Um, our, uh, we cut quickly over to the Althor farm where, uh, suddenly a Trolloc is attacking, uh, Tam and Rand as well. Um, a lot of interesting things happen in this scene. I know you guys have some thoughts. That, that sword. Oh, that absolutely. Sword. So gorgeous. The, the sword with the duck on it. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I also noticed that it was right? hidden. It yes. was hiding under his bed in a chest. This is not something that he wants to show everybody. It's not something that he he cares about it clearly, but it's not something that he brings out and displays. And he knows how to use it. Even though it's a beautiful sword. And yeah, he's he's not proud of it. He's got something something in his past. Really told me something about Tam, and I I have this major theory that I'm going to stick to until somebody tells me otherwise in the show. But I think he's a warder in his past. There's several reasons that that sword was katana based exactly. Um, 
like land sword is katana based. So, you know, okay. that suggests that the warders have kind of a, a standard sword that they use. He could fight. He pulled that sword mm-hmm. out and he was slashing and blocking in ways that were clean and not, and very re- rehearsed like he'd done it before. Um, plus he has all this knowledge about, the White Tower and Aes Sedai and the world. And did you notice that he knew they were Trollocs? Yep. <laughs> well, everybody else is screaming, what the hell is that? He's like, oh, that's a troll. Well, there's that. There's also, I got the feel from the heron on the blade that the, the, what I was reminded of was Kill Bill. That like, is that the Hattori Hanzo? We're going to later see that emblem and be like, that's the guy who makes the magic swords or whatever it is. So Heron style. like It was featured heavily. Like they lit it up and it wasn't fast either. They paused for a good moment on that. Good hero shot. Yes. Heron shot, I guess. <laughs> the hero Heron shot. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, so then we cut back to the two rivers uh, where we've got uh, Nynaeve and Egwene are now getting uh, attacked by a Trolloc. This is the one you were talking about earlier, Siobhan, that came running up at them on all fours and then yeah. stood up. Um, and this scene, I, I, I absolutely loved this scene. The, the Trolloc comes rushing up and it screams in their face and Nynaeve screams right back in its face. <laughs> Yeah, I have I have a feeling they saw uh they saw Captain Marvel and was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I found jarring about that scene was that was the one that Moraine tore apart. And like th- that that was some CGI that made all the other um practical effects so much stand out so much more. Mm-hmm. In other words, it wasn't a badly done CGI. But because the the practical effects were being done so well, it was jarring for a quick moment to see something be like, "Oh, that was that was CGI there." Oh, okay, I guess I guess they're mixing both. Right. Yeah, it did it did stand out to me as well. It just didn't flow. That one little shot didn't quite flow with the rest of the battle. Everything else was shot so so beautifully. So absolutely, yeah. The the, the sense of frenzy and the sense of uh, of danger and doom was really Mm -hmm. there. There was an interesting spot where they were watching um, Matt walk away to go find his sisters and they switched from cart to a shaky cam and Mm -hmm. it was him stumbling. It was, it was a little distracting because it was such a jarring switch, but then it was like, Oh, that is him. That's his character. He's kind of stumbling. He's disoriented. It made sense at that point. Well, and I, speaking of that, I noticed it's one of my least favorite things in especially some good martial arts films is when they use shaky cam that for the movie makers makes it easier to get away with some of the effects or the the uh, shots not needing to be shown so cleanly. But it also detracts from me because if somebody's a really good martial artist, I want to see them. Please hold the camera still so I can yep. see it. And with this. Like the beginning, I was a little concerned because even not just that scene, there were other moments where they used a bit of shaky cam. And then I realized, no, it's because that was the frenzy that was the beginning. Once you get land fighting, once you get the different people, there's some calm that comes over the camera. So it's they they did it just for a moment to jar you up. And they're like, no, don't worry, we're not going to do this the whole time, Yeah, which I, I appreciate. I, I thought that was a fantastic choice because 
all this happens so suddenly, everybody's terrified and disoriented and running around screaming. And then at the point where the camera starts to slow down, it's where people are picking up their weapons and fighting back. And it's not mm-hmm. just the swordsman, it's everybody. Like the woman from the bar is like picked up something sharp and she's hitting with a pitchfork or something. <laughs> Yeah, the ladies with yeah. the pitchfork. The end was, scene uh, where they all converge on the last Trolloc. It's great. Oh, it was yeah. beautiful. It was it was a moment of seeing that this town is not necessarily defenseless. Granted, the amount of Trollocs that they're going to be facing, it's more daunting. But like when they had that moment, they teamed up and they took that one down. And it was impressive to see them not just be like, oh, we're peasants, please <laughs> save us. <laughs> And and that character I don't think was named in the credits, but I can tell you that her name is Daisy Conger. Um, that the knowing the the inhabitants of of uh, the two rivers, I can tell you that that was Daisy Conger. There's there's no ifs ands or buts about it. I loved that scene because you know it was very much you know p- people jumping in to deal with the attack and defending their town and their their family without all just running and screaming. But not everyone. But no. What the hell was Potten Fan? That was a great scene. I was wondering if anyone was going to pick up on that. What was Potten oh, Fan doing? I noticed that one right away. He's just kind of hanging out watching, going, huh, interesting. I could almost picture him there with a knife and an apple just watching everything. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> right. <laughs> So it been the scene where they're all stabbing the one on the ground. It, I, I can't remember clearly, but I have a feeling it was all of like the women council. I don't. I don't think there were any men in that moment. I think it was the the women that were drinking at the bar together. There were no men in that moment. I'm not sure if it's the council. I didn't notice if there were you know braids or anything that was sort of a uh, sort of a signifier. But they were they were mama bears. <laughs> <laughs> they were protecting the protecting town, that's for sure. So getting back into um the fact that these Trollocs are pretty intelligent. Like I don't know if anybody noticed this, but they went straight for the people that they were going for. You had the one that went to the farm, you had the one that went after Matt's family, you had the one that went straight for Layla and Perrin, and the one that went straight for Gwen. They knew who they were going after. There was no question about it. Yeah, true. I I was actually not sure that anyone was going to pick up on that, but uh, yeah, that that yeah, I mean, very the, astute observation there, David. The farm. How far is it out of town? Exactly. Yeah, Matt and Tam's farm. Yeah, it, it's it. Matt and Tam's farm is just it's out there. So they were targets. That's for sure. But who is the target? Could it be the former the former ward order or the potential dragon. I'm going to guess Layla wasn't the target, but she was definitely well, going to die as soon as that scene started. Yeah, I knew that she wasn't the target, but she still got a hit. That's what sure. I, I got to say. Yeah. That was a gasp moment. Yes. I was watching with my 12 year old and my wife and we collectively went. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that, that happened in our house too. And, and... I, I don't think we moved for about, 10 seconds after it happened. And then my wife was like, Oh man, I was almost in tears at that point. Yeah. It was a gut punch. Pardon the pun. So but, a question well. for you, Rurark. Yes. Um, since this is a character that was, you're telling us not in the books, were you made interested enough in the character that her death had an impact on you? 
Um, the death did have an impact on me because of the brutality of the death. Um, okay. it was, it was not expected. Um, I, I did kind of expect her to die before the end of the episode because, you know, how could Perrin go on this journey with, with a wife still there, but I wasn't necessarily expecting something like that. That was, as, as, uh, Greg put it, that was a gut punch and, my wife and I were talking about the fact like that's not something you get over. Oh no, that's, not, that's going to mess with Perrin for a while. Yeah. And does he tell anybody that that's what happened? Like he just brings her body out and lays it with all the others that the I Trollocs noticed killed. that. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter was instantly. She's like, he's going to have issues for his whole life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That will that, that will so. stick around like luggage. Not that he didn't already have issues, because honestly, that was an anger fit that wasn't in the moment. There was something there from past or for his personality. He's got some anger issues. It was, it was almost true like that. That true. a bez- came out because it was almost of like a berserker rage. Right. Absolutely. He seemed fairly, you know, fairly calm, fairly easygoing. And then <laughs> you get him into a life or death situation and uh, yeah, all hell breaks loose. He doesn't have much uh, control when he's like that. Put a trollic axe in his hand and things go bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you could say that to just about just one, just about anybody. Yeah. Trollic axes never, never lead to a good time. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a trollic. Yeah, unless you're a troll, who knows what troll might do in their bedrooms. Yeah, who, who knows? I don't want to get too deep know. into that that question. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that around sounds this, like a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, a whole different podcast. Join yeah, us for Wheel of Time one. After Dark. <laughs> Love line for Trollocs. <laughs> so uh, around the same time, we see Nynaeve dragged off by a Trolloc. Yeah, where'd she go? She'll be back. I don't think she's dead. She's not no, dead. She's She'll sure. be back. I'm sure she's you not don't, dead. You don't put that much effort into making her mysterious and important. No, she's going to show up and be like, what's up, guys? You know? <laughs> okay. So so nobody is fooled by, by Nynaeve being carted off by a Trolloc? No. No. She's 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 out there. She will return. I can all... Like, that is... That's just obvious. Well, in all honesty, I didn't have any suspicion of her being uh, on the on the uh, betrayal type of side. But now your guys's comments about how maybe she's faking it, like, oh, well, now that leads a little bit more that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, I really think that maybe that her being in the possession of the dark ones or in in their uh, league or being with them even if as their prisoner causes her to be corrupted at that point because she's already got this obvious hatred for the Aes Sedai so it hatred leads to uh darkness as we all know from Star Wars <laughs> yeah she's got she's got sort of a Palpatine kind of vibe is she a double agent you know we may never know mm-hmm. although we, we will know at some point but we may yeah. never know <laughs> If we stop watching, we'll never know. But no, that's not going to happen. I'm watching this. Not at this point. I'm in. So then we get to kind of our our, our big scene of this whole episode. Uh, Moraine and Lan, they're in there. They're fighting the Trollocs. We're seeing them working together. You finally see how a warder and Aes Sedai can, can work to get together, um, how that bond kind of helps them. 
Uh, we see Moraine get get uh, stabbed by a throwing knife uh, right in the shoulder, and then we see Moraine kind of kind of go crazy and 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 really reach out and and start using some some really intense magic at that point. Uh, David, you have something to say about that? Yeah, so I I wanted to touch on the magic itself because, man, first of all. I dig that effect a lot. Yeah. Like it very seriously cool. looked like she was a comic book character while she was using the magic. It was a little doctor. Really, Strange really flat, which kind of thing. Yeah. It was, it was lit really flat. So she kind of just went into another world. Um, and even the, the strands as they were reaching out kind of did the same thing. So like, it made me think, Hey, this magic isn't really in the world. It's kind of outside of the world, but affecting the world. And I also noticed that she had to pull from the things around her. Like the magic isn't just created it, it exists, but she has to kind of pull it from somewhere. It's the light. It's the light. They keep conferring, you know, con- they keep referring to the light and she's pulling things from flames, from candles. Well, and her energy too. Like she's drained by pulling this out. Right. By the time she's done with this fight, she can almost barely stand. DW. Uh, the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was also um, from, from an actor's standpoint, one of the most difficult things with doing magic is when you're acting it, there's nothing happening. So trying to like make it seem real and consistent and stuff is a compliment to anybody that you watch do magic in a, in a TV show or movie and you don't see it as odd. They've right. made it natural. So, but one of the things I thought was beautiful with this particular one, which also goes back to, I think Siobhan, you were the one to note this in one of our previous episodes, the circles they're do, they did the aerial shot, and her, she's the circle in the center, and you have Lan still fighting around her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful moment of watching her create a circle around herself, but you also still have some awesome fighting going on, so it's not just watching somebody wave their hands and be weird. <laughs> like, you, like, that's happening, but you also, your eye is drawn to him fighting, so there's so much going on that you don't have time to find it odd that just these hand gestures that go on. So it was my compliments to them on, on how they, for lack of a better term, wove that. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. To have somebody just sort of doing this woo woo thing. while in the meantime, you got a badass beheading creatures behind her, watching her back, you know, <laughs> having her six. That's just, that was fantastic. The effect with the helix going up into the, into the clouds to create the lightning was really that, that was an interesting choice of uh, visuals there. Yeah, it almost looked like DNA. Sort of that going up. Yeah, that double helix strand sort of twisting up into the clouds. That's uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how that's going to pan out. What, yeah, I was interested in that as well. I liked the uh, the visual representation that they had of that at that moment. Um, and uh, just to reference what uh, to. Uh, um, Palpatine, who was brought up earlier, who uh, mm-hmm. threw the Senate at somebody, Moraine then uh, threw the inn at the Trollocs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brick by brick. That was that was very cool. The just turning all of that, all of the brickwork into, you know, in, in, into projectiles. That, that that was a lot more visceral than just waving the hand and somebody just blows apart. 
Well, and again, it it says something about the magic in this this world because we haven't seen the actual magic itself hit somebody. Like the magic creates fire, and then they throw the fire, or the magic pulls the rock out of the the mountain, and they throw the rock at them. The magic itself hasn't been thrown at them. I don't know. It did kind of tear apart the one that was after uh, Nynaeve and Ingwit. It just. It, it sort of shredded them apart. That was the CGI that you were talking about, DW. There, it just uh, it, that's what it seemed to do. I didn't notice any projectiles or anything. It was sort of like the light just sort of grabbed him and yeah, kind of wrung him like a like a, a wet rag or something almost. Yeah, it's almost like the magic is an extension of the Sedai, Like it's another arm or a feature of them. In a way, I could see that, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, after Moraine literally drops an in on the rest of the Trollocs, um, we, the, our next shot is uh, Rand arriving in the Two Rivers the next morning uh, with, with Tam in tow. Tam has been injured by a Trolloc blade. Um, and he comes looking for Nynaeve to, to heal him, and that's when he finds out that Nynaeve is gone. Or is she? Um, so Moraine oh, steps up. She's just not there. Yes. So Moraine steps up to, uh, to heal Tam. Any, any thoughts on this scene? The poison that they were referring to, this is something that's known by the Trollocs, you know, something that they use the, the poison of the weapons, uh, which brings up a good question about the spawning. You know, if they're actually spawned from these, these animals that were in the, the half yin yang symbol, where are they getting these weapons? Those are forged. Those are those are created. It's not like some improvised thing that they're just you know grabbing out of the forest. Unless they're bone. Uh, huh? I don't know if we got a good enough look at them to decide. Oh yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they they did look rough. They were definitely hewn. Uh, not so much forged, but hewn. But they had a real metallic aspect to them to hold the to hold those edges. But. Uh, Where'd the poison come from? I'll be honest. I don't know that I saw a difference between their poison and um, like the witch, uh, the, the, the um, uh, what was the name? The, the witch king was one of them in, in game, in uh, Lord of the Rings. The Nazgul. Um, the Nazgul. Uh, their blade just in, an, in its own existence had a taint to it when they stabbed Frodo with it. Like that, that's already, already there. Um, and so I didn't know if that, but my question then became when she healed the wound, did she also heal the poison or does he now have the poison coursing through him? That's going to have some effect on him down the road. I don't know. It seemed to be with, you know, it, it, when the poison, uh, presents itself, it's usually, you know, the black mark on the skin and that did go away as the healing happened. So I don't know, just that, 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 uh, evidence of corruption just seems sort of on the surface, so to speak, but who knows? It almost seemed like the magic strands pulled it out. Of yeah, him. that was, that was my take like on it. The, the light strands seemed to darken as they came out of his body. Interesting. I didn't notice that. My question then became, did she pull it into herself? Cause she definitely got a lot weaker for doing that little bit of magic, as opposed mm-hmm. to the rock slinging that she did earlier that caused the same amount of weakness. Ah. Uh, I had thought that from specifically the, um, I I had figured that specifically from the uh, difficulty of healing somebody. 
So in other words, that that is more draining for them than hurling a building. Like the the actual sewing together of somebody's muscle and and skin and everything is a more complicated spell. But I didn't consider that she was maybe taking the poison. That's a valid, very very uh, interesting point. The other point is a lot of magics out there in in various uh, different forms have some sort of um, exacted punishment or exacted. Uh, thing that you have to take to pay for the use of the magic. And perhaps that's part of it as well. Hmm. Could be. All right. So moving on with our story, um, we have Moraine immediately after healing Tam, uh, kind of lets the, the, our four heroes in on the secret and says, uh, Hey, one of you is probably the dragon reborn. And that's why these Trollocs are here trying to kill your town. And you're only, Hope is to bounce with me and we're out of here. So let's go. There was some interesting exposition there. I don't know if it was right after she told them or right after they noticed that the army was heading down on upon them. But uh, Moraine said his whispers are already in the backs of our minds. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, that is a seriously Christian concept right there of the devil whispering in the backs of our heads. I, I had not picked up on that, but yes, that that's a very good, uh, very good observation there. I like that. Yeah, I kind of picked up on that more along the lines of you know from Star Wars perspective, you know the the the, the dark side of the Force just sort of whispering to you and Palpatine's voice. Yeah, I, I kind of took that as a um, you know magic users like the people who say that they can hear the wind are starting to hear the effects of him being around. Uh, yeah, and and uh, leading into the the end of the show, there we have Moraine doing the narration from uh, as as I explained in the last episode, the narration that begins every single book. Uh, the wheel of time turns, ages come and pass. Uh, David, you had an observation about that. Yeah, she also uh, brings in a narration about the heroes starting their journey and the fact that this is the third age, but all of that is in past tense. So it suggests that Moraine is telling this story after everything has taken place and they've all survived or people have survived and she's survived. And the story I was is say, at least she survived <laughs> yeah, at, at a minimum. She, she survived, <laughs> but the story is already taken place and she's now telling us all about it. But that's an interesting take. I like it. Yeah, that's a little like sort of the uh, it, one of the the Game of Thrones. One of the bits that came up in the last season that was actually really cool is when Sam goes to the library at the uh, Citadel, and the same sun type, you know, rotating uh, device that you see in the opening episode, the opening sh- the opening sequence of every episode is there. It's in the Citadel. So it's like, is this Sam just sort of telling the story of what happened? I mean, the, the, in the Lord of the Rings at the end, it's, it's, uh, just, uh, the, the red book of Westmarch is, is the story, you know, written, written by the hobbits after the, after the whole thing was done. So, you know, maybe, maybe you guys are onto something there. Clearly following a fantasy trope of the telling of the story. Fantasy tropes, there none of those exist here. I don't know what you could possibly be talking about. Wait, this is fantasy? I thought this was (laughs) sci-fi. 
<laughs> fine with me. All right. And with that, I think it's time to just wrap this one up. I uh, want to say join us next episode. We'll be talking about uh, episode two of the show. So you won't want to miss that. Uh, we want to give special thanks to Michael and Jen from Watch Party who made all this possible. And of course, as always, huge gargantuan thanks to our audio editor, Jordan Rennells. Uh He does magic with what we give him. So we, we love you, Jordan. Thank you for everything you do. Uh, this has been a production of Watch Party Podcasts. Uh, final word from our guests. Trollocs are descending on the town, and you've just been told that you might be the Dragon Reborn. Where are we going? I'm going hiding in the woods with Matt and his, do- and his, and his sisters. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I'm sticking with I'm the gone. woman with magic and the man I, with That the was sword. gonna be my answer as well. The people with the pointy sticks. I'm heading towards them. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there was beer. <laughs> Do not hide in the inn. Don't ask me how I know this. <laughs> <laughs>